0: Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit christcovenant.com. Our scripture reading today comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And we believe that this word we hold in our hands today comes to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and as such it is as if Jesus were saying these words to us himself today. Hebrews chapter 10 with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, I, th- I think at this time, uh, chaps, we can like switch the lights. We-, we don't have a lot of control over the technology here, but there we go. Is that as bright as we can get them? They're coming. Okay. Well, guys, this is going to be awesome. Um uh, yeah, we're, 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 still, we're still chipping away at uh, getting the technology. At least if you remember live here last week, this section was in the... I'm sure some of y'all avoided that section uh, this week. We got that fixed. But uh, well, we've been in a series on friendship these past three weeks now, and um, it's been a great thing to think about. I, I, I hope that you ha- have thought about um, and maybe have been moved to consider the importance of friendship. On uh, the necessity of friendship, um, I, I hope that having good friends, meaningful friendships christ centered friendships would be a priority um, to you and, and that I hope that this would be a church where you would be known and loved and you would find true Christian communion here. I was talking to a couple um, Uh, a couple weeks ago about our church. And I just said, well, what is, you know, what is something that, you know, maybe drew you to Christ's covenant? And they said, uh, well, we really like how people stand around and talk to each other after the service. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's great. You know, it's not the preaching that they like here. It's not even the music. It's it's that we talk to people. And And they said, they said, as we were like looking at that, we said, it seems like they like each other. And I said, you know what, that's what, I, that's what I want. I think that's kind of the way it's supposed to be. Isn't this what Jesus said? That, that you'll know, the world will know that you are my disciples in the way that you love one another. And obviously, we want you to love one another beyond just a few moments uh, before and after the service on Sunday morning. We want you to, to be a community, to be a congregation, people that love one another, that are pursuing one another. And there's a lot of benefits to friendship. There's a lot of benefits to this kind of friendship, and I think we see those, some of those in this passage. So three things that I want to look at with you today is, first, what do you get out of friendship? Second, what do others get out of friendship? And then lastly, what does the watching world get out of friendship? So what do you get out of friendship? Well, first, a little note on the book of Hebrews. If you've read the book of Hebrews, um, one of the things that the author of Hebrews is doing is he's picking up a lot of Old Testament themes, and he is saying, now we see in Christ this is being fulfilled. Uh, And so a lot of the kind of themes that you see throughout the Old Testament literature, the author of Hebrews picks up on those, and he says, now we see how Jesus makes these things possible, how Jesus has completed this work. And there's different sections, there's different themes, and I don't have time to give you kind of a survey of Hebrews, but this particular section where we find chapter 10, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is talking about the presence of God, that in Christ, I mean, this is an amazing thing, and these, these, the people that were listening would have known about this, they, they would have known about the power of the presence of God, how you were healed, how you were made new. We talked about this a few weeks ago. How you were renewed and made right, how you were made holy, was by being in the presence of God, by being near to the presence of God. And this is the promise of the Christian life, that Christ has made you so holy, that Christ has made you so complete, you, Christian, I'm talking to you, that God's presence can be near you without killing you, and that God's presence can actually indwell you. And that God's presence can keep you and that God's presence can shape the way you think and the way you move and the way you behave, that you can be one with God in Christ, that you can know the presence of God. And this is what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. How do you stay in the presence of God? How do you pursue this holiness? How do you pursue this purity? And you know how? You know what he says here? Friendship. One another. You want to not fall away? From the presence of God, you want to not fall away from the holiness of God, be in community. Do not neglect, he says, to meet together. I always said these words, uh, you know, this is an encouraging passage for me. Do not neglect to meet together, as is, the, as is the habit of some, you know, and what it encourages me with is that, you know, people not attending, uh, coming together for worship is not a new problem, right? This is the first, the author of Hebrews saying, well, we got a problem, people not coming together. And, 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 but I want you to see how much you need this, and then maybe a little bit what this is. The word meet together is the, the Greek word episunagoge, episunagoge, which you, you kind of see a lot in that, this idea of the same root as synagogue is in that. But here's what it the essence of this, and I looked at a couple of commentators, it's people that gather who belong together. It's, it's not people who gather as an aggregation. It's not people who gather as just particular pieces that happen to be together for something, right? You gather with a lot of people throughout the week. You know, if you go to a concert or a football game, um, you gather because you're there. You're interested in the same thing, but you don't necessarily belong to those people. You might talk to the guy next to you at the football game or give him a high five if your team scores a touchdown, but like you don't you don't call each other after that. You're you're just an aggregation of people. You're interested in the same thing, but you're not a community. You're not a congregation. That's not what this word means. It says don't neglect the gathering of people that belong together. This organic, this it's more like a family. It's, it, the, the word here is more like Thanksgiving, right? You ever go to Thanksgiving and somebody couldn't make it that year that's always there? That's what this is saying. Don't be that guy. Don't be the guy that doesn't show up for Thanksgiving. You, you don't neglect the meeting together. Don't neglect the family that you're a part of. Don't neglect the congregation that you are called to be a part of. It's an interesting word. It's not used often in the New Testament. Another place that it's used, though, is in 2 Thessalonians, Episunagoge, which talks about the great gathering, the great gathering when the Lord returns, when He gathers together his whole church, right? And everyone that belongs, right? Everyone that belongs to Him in the great gathering will be there with the Lord when they are gathered together, when we are gathered together with the Lord in this sense of the work is done, the scattering is complete, well done, you've been gathered back in now. And, every, and, I, and, he, and Jesus, when He gathers His church, won't miss anyone. Everyone will be gathered with Him on that day. You know, at Southern Seminary, uh, graduation is kind of sad because you know, especially if you're like an on-campus student, because you know you've been there, um, you've gotten to be friends with these people. Any any graduation is sad, Um, but uh, you know, you you know that these people at the school are going to scatter all over the world, Uh, and some people are going to go be pastors, some people are going to go work on church staff, some people are going to be church planners. Some people are going to go on mission field. They're literally going to go all over the world. You know, as you're graduating, some of these people are going to go on the mission field and die for their faith. And as, as is true of every graduation, you know that not everyone in the group will ever be assembled together completely again. And that's true of every graduation. But we, at Southern, we sing this seminary hymn. They've, they've literally sang it at every graduation since the school began the school began in 1859. I guess they had their first graduation in 1861 or something. So from every graduation from that time until now, winter and um, you know spring, they sing this song. It's called Soldiers of Christ and Truth Arrayed. It's a great song. But there's this line in it that says, we meet to part and part to meet when earthly labors are complete. We meet to part so, right, we meet to part. We, we, we came together. We went to seminary knowing that we weren't going to stay in seminary forever, right? We meet knowing that we were going to part, and we part knowing that we're going to meet again at the great episode of at the when earthly labors are complete, where Christ gathers His church, and He'll gather His church from all over the world. There'll be this great in gathering. And that's a great thing to think about. Scattering so well all over the world doing God's great work until Christ gathers us home. But as that happens, and I think what we're getting from the text here, seeing these this word used in these two different ways. As Christ is going to gather his church one day eventually at the end of all things when all of his work is done, this great gathering, there is a sense when he does that among the big C universal church. There is a sense that that should be repeated every single week in the Little Sea local church. We're living out a rhythm of meeting and parting and parting and meeting every single week. This is part of the rhythm of the Christian life. We meet, then we part, we part, but then we know we're going to meet. We're not supposed to stay in this sanctuary together all the time. First of all, the middle schoolers would come tomorrow and they'd want us to leave. But we're not supposed to stay together all the time. There's a rhythm of the church that we're supposed to meet and be the church and be fully the church. And then we're supposed to scatter and guess what? Be fully the church, scattered around as ambassadors for Christ. And one of the things I always say is I want you to scatter well. I want you to scatter as a witness to the Lord, as an ambassador for Christ, as one who goes out in the name of the Lord giving your life to the work of Christ and whatever God has called you to do. And I hope that you scatter so well and you scatter with such intentionality that by the time Sunday comes around, that by the time your small group meets on Tuesday or Thursday or whenever it meets, you're so spiritually exhausted that you're saying to yourself, I got to gather. I am hungry to gather with my fellow believers. I need to be called together. I need the gathering because I've been scattering so well. And then I pray that we would gather so well and we'd be so encouraged by the gathering and the way that we gather together that we'd scatter well. And we'd scatter with courage and with energy and with force. So my prayer is that you're scattering well so that you'll gather well and that we gather well so that you'll scatter well. We meet to part and part to meet until next week. That should be our hymn, right? But the author of Hebrews is saying here this, and I want you to hear this, and this is, this is a good warning. Read the, if you ever have read the book of Hebrews, that's full of warnings, and this is a good warning for us. What he is saying that is that if you neglect the gathering, if you're the family member that doesn't show up at, at Thanksgiving, there's more at stake than just not scattering well. He says that if, if you won't gather, you'll, you won't draw near the presence of God. You'll forget the presence of God. You'll fall into sin, and as he says here, you'll begin sinning deliberately. And he ends this section, the, the kind of the end of his thought here in verse 30 and 31, he says, "'For we know him who said, "'Vengeance is mine.'" I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what do you get out of Christian friendship? Well, what this is saying is, without Christian friendship, you fall into sin, you sin deliberately, and then you fall into the hands of the living God. You need one another. We need one another. You need to be corrected and encouraged and built up by one another. If you're not in consistent friendship, what this is saying is that your heart will grow hard against the Lord. You won't stay in the presence of God, and one day you will face the righteous judgment of God, and that is a fearful thing. So stay in community. Be in relationship with one another. Don't forsake the epithynogogae. It is an essential part of the Christian life. Look, I've been a pastor for 15 years now, and you know, that's not like forever, but that's a decent amount of time. And I, I, I tried to think of it this week. I don't even know if I can tell you a time or tell you of an of a instance where somebody was a part of the community where they were known where they were in community with other people, where they were sharing their souls with other people and and serving with that community and fell into significant soul-breaking sin. I'm not saying that that has never happened. I just, in my 15 years of pastoral ministry, I just can't think of a time when someone who was being known in the community, bearing their souls with other, praying with other believers, a part of a community, I just can't tell of a time when that person fell out of the presence of God but i can tell you story after story after story after story after story of people who wouldn't be known who wouldn't be a part of a community who had no real vulnerability with anyone who started forsaking worshiping who started forsaking to serve together and who 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 one of two things happened either they fell into some horrible thing that almost ruined or did ruin a big part of their life, or they just, their heart grew hard against the Lord and they've walked away from the faith. That's my experience. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so receive this warning. I mean, if you're here today and you, and no one knows you and you're not vulnerable and you're forsaking Christian community, you need this what benefit is friendship to you? It saves your soul. It, it keeps your soul near the presence of God. But secondly, how does friendship benefit others? Or, or maybe more specifically, what I want to talk about in this passage is how are, if friendship is so important, how are we supposed to be good friends? How are we supposed to be a beneficial friend? And this passage is so important. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, this is the kind of passage that you really, if you want to be a good friend, if we want to be a church that, that loves one another and that has genuine community, we really should set this to memory. And there's three words in here that I want you to think about with me. The first is consider. Consider how to stir one another along. Now there's two kind of ideas implied in the word consider, how to stir one another along. First, there is some sort of an urgency toward other people, right? You're considering others, right? You're you outward focused. Other people are on your radar. You, you have a mind toward people beyond just yourself. You're concerned with one another, and I just want to say that to you. Do you have any urgency for other people? <laughs> it, it, do you do you? is your Christianity your, just your own experience that you're trying to get a lot out of? Or do you have a faith where you realize you're part of a corporate body and you have a concern for the health of that whole body? This is what has so been lost in modern evangelical Christianity is a lack of a concern that we are a part of a body together. We've been called to be epithunagoge. We've been called to be this gathering that belongs with one another. So do you have any concern for other people? Or is your only concern for your own faith? Is there any shared experience in your Christian life? Is there any urgency? This is one of the reasons that this is so important. And, you know, we, we talked about this. Blake mentioned this just, just a second ago. For example, when we sing, we are singing to the Lord. I want to sing, I, When I sing, I believe that God hears me And that he hears me saying, great is your faithfulness. You know, that he knows that I I believe that his faithfulness is great and wonderful and perfect, and it pleases him to hear me declare that. And so, yes, I want the Lord to be the audience of my singing. But you know what else? I, I also want us to have when we sing and when we come together for us to have concern for one another. You know, husbands, I want you when you come here to sing in such a way so that when your wife hears you, th- she thinks to herself, "My husband really loves Jesus." And women, you know, I want when you sing for your friends to say, "You know, she is, she actually believes this." And this goes beyond our singing—the way that we serve, the way that we're in community, the way we bear ourselves, the way we encourage one another. Do you have any concern for the faith of others? Beyond your own, or are you concerned that the faith of someone else say strong? So there's there's a there's an urgency implied in this, but there's also thought involved. This word consider implies thoughtfulness. And this is very important. This took me a long time to learn. I know how I like to be stirred along. Toward love and good deeds. You know, I grew up playing sports. Like, if you want to, if you need to get my attention, you can kind of bark me out a little bit, and then you know, give me a pat on the butt, and I'll be good. You know, I know that, but you know, I, that doesn't work with everybody. That's that's not the way everybody is stirred along. Everybody's motivated in different kinds of ways. Not everyone uh, is spurred on by the same kinds of things. So you know, one of the things that's helped me to learn this is marriage, right? You know, the phrase, get your game face on, doesn't work with Paige that well. <laughs> she hates it. Now, that doesn't mean that Paige is, is, you know, that you can't motivate Paige, and that doesn't mean that she less, has less energy than I do or that she's less capable than me. No, no, no. She's just motivated differently than I am. I have to consider how to stir her along toward faith and good deeds, And the method that I use there may be different than how I am stirred along toward faith and good deeds. So there is an implied urgency in this, and there's also an implied thoughtfulness in this. And I just want to say that to you. If there's someone in your life you feel responsible for, you're praying for, have you considered what might stir them along toward faith and good deeds? I want to come back to this because it's implied in the next thing I want to look at. But the second word that I want you to think about is stir. Or stirring along, it, the, the word is paroxysm, which it, it it kind of actually more so means like to provoke or to spur. Uh, that's probably a better word. Some of your translations may even say spurred. What what do you do when you spur a horse? You you actually kind of hurt the horse a little bit, right? You're 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 provoking the horse, but it gets it moving, it gets it going. And I just want to say we need this in our Christian walk. We need to be spurred sometimes. There are a lot of times in my Christian walk that I don't want to be generous or I don't want to be forgiving or I don't want to be pure. I need spurring along. Now, to some degree or another, preaching should do this, right? One of the great disciplines of the Christian life is sitting under the preaching of God's word so that by hearing God's word preached, it should spur you. You should feel conviction, unless you're perfect, right? So if you're perfect, of course, you wouldn't feel conviction during a sermon, but for anyone that's not perfect, if you have not felt conviction in your corporate church gathering, you're probably not hearing the Word of God. You should should be convicted. There should be a certain spurring that takes place even in this act right now, sitting under the preaching of God's word. But, you know, what can easily happen if this is all you're getting, if you're not really in community, is you you go to the service, you kind of feel some conviction. You think, ah, I'll say a little quick prayer. Then you go to lunch and you forget all about it. What's better is when you have that and then a friend follows up with you because they know you and love you and because they see something in your life that they know doesn't please the Lord. And they say to you, hey, you know, I've noticed this in your life. It's not right. It doesn't please the Lord. You know this isn't good. And that's harder to ignore. That's harder to just say, well, I'll go to lunch and forget about it. You have to deal with that. And what I want to say is, is there anyone in your life that can have spurring conversations with you? And let me ask you further, is there anyone that you're having spurring conversations with? Is there anyone that you have the courage and the love for that you're willing to spur them along, to stir them along? And when we do this, we have to consider how to do this. So let me tie these two ideas together. There's a a famous biblical story about King David. King David is the most famous character in the Bible other than Jesus, his... um, name is actually mentioned, the second most name mentioned in the Bible other than Jesus. He's kind of the star of the Old Testament, great king of Israel, beloved, a man after God's own heart. He did, he did so many things right and well and good and pleasing to the Lord in his life, but he has this kind of one episode. He has, some, he has several hard episodes, but this one episode in particular, that's incredibly difficult. Soldiers were away at war. David stayed back, and he sees this beautiful woman. Her husband was away at war, and so he, you know, is curious. And so he invites her into his palace, and, you know, what happens? One thing leads to another. And then next thing you know, her name is Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. Well, now David's like, oh, man, I'm going to fix now. People are going to know what I've done. And so he has this plan. He he brings her husband, who's this guy named Uriah, back home, and he says, Uriah, go and be with your wife. You know, cover it up. People think it's his. Well, Uriah is so honorable that he decides, you know what, all my fellow soldiers, they're out in the battlefield. They're sleeping outside. Uh, You know, the the ark of the Lord is away from the city, uh, you know, away from Jerusalem. I'm not going to go sleep with him. I can't sleep with my wife in good conscience. So, he sleeps, uh, you know, he sleeps outside. He, He won't go home. And David, the second night, gets him back and he says, no, you need to go home, Uriah. He gets him drunk, you know, which, you know, you make a lot of people do things when they're drunk. And he says, hey, you're drunk, go, go home and be with your wife, right? It's, she's beautiful. But Uriah is so honorable, he doesn't go. So now David's like, well, I can't get this guy to do this. And so then he devises even a worse scheme. He, uh, and, you know, it's even worse because Uriah is a Hittite. He's not, even, uh, he's not even born a Hebrew. He was converted. He's a converted Hebrew citizen, and yet still he's so loyal to David. He's so loyal to Israel. So David sends him back on the battlefield. He has him march in the front lines, and then they have this horrible scheme where they—they they, all the soldiers attack, Uriah attacks, but David had the general pull all the other soldiers back. Uriah was left out there for dead. I mean, just horrible, wicked scheme. But of course, now Uriah is dead. And so David brings Bathsheba into the palace and marries her. And of course, she has the baby. And maybe some people thought it was a little weird that she married the king so quickly. And maybe people thought, you know, the pregnancy didn't seem to last the full term. But David, you know, had ways to cover that up. But this displeased the Lord. But David had a friend, a prophet named Nathan, And Nathan went to him, and he said, David, let me tell you a story. There was one man, and he had herds. He was wealthy. He had all of these herds, all of these sheep, all of these great herds. And there was another man who was very poor, and he just had one lamb. But the lamb was precious to him. He loved the lamb. In fact, his family was so poor, they treated the lamb like a pet. In fact, Nathan tells David, the lamb was like a daughter to the man. And a, and a traveler came to the town where these two men lived. And it was, you know, customary. If somebody came, you would prepare a nice dinner for him. So the traveler came, and the rich man wouldn't give up one of his herds, even though he had many lambs. He had many herds of many livestock. He wouldn't give up one. And what, the rich man took the lamb from this man who only had one lamb, and he gave it to the traveler. And when David heard this, he was furious. And he said, this man deserves to die. The rich man should have to pay him back fourfold for what he has done. And Nathan looked at David and said, you are the man. You're the one that did. Look at what you did to Uriah. Who do you think you are? Now, David was the king. It was a big risk for Nathan to do this. You know, the king could have had him killed, but of course, he didn't have him killed. He was convicted. Nathan was a good friend. He spurred him on. He ended up doing the right thing. His his heart uh, grew soft before the Lord. It saved his soul. It saved his kingdom. Is there anyone in your life that will do this? And are you willing to do this? To spur one another along? Nathan gave thought to think, how can I spur him? And... This was effective. The last word that I want you to think about is encourage. Consider, stir, encourage. Encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. The author of Hebrews says earlier in Hebrews 3, encourage one another daily. This is a regular rhythm of Christian friendship. Are you an encourager? Are you thinking, who can I encourage? How can I be an encouragement to other people? I love the word. It's parakaleo. It literally means come alongside and call out to someone. Come alongside them and call out to them. It's, it's almost as if you're running alongside. Somebody, come on, come on. You can finish. You're almost done. The, the English kind of etymology is, just, is to give courage to someone, to encourage, to give them courage. Who are you encouraging? Is there anyone in your life that you're encouraging? You know something that I would love that would change our church? I would love if all of our members would take our little directory and just pray, if you, even if you would just pray for one person a day. And this is encourage one another daily. If you would just encourage one other daily, just one other, just think, okay, who can I encourage today? Who can I pray for today? Who can I pray that they would be courageous? that they would live their life for the Lord, that they would pursue Christ faithfully and holy. Who can I give courage to today, encourage one another daily? This would totally change. It'd be so good for us. It's courage that we need. So we've talked about what is the benefit of friendship to you? It keeps you faithful. It keeps you in God's presence. It keeps you from judgment. We talked about how to be a beneficial friend in these three words, consider, stir, and encourage. But finally, and very quickly, I want to talk about what is the benefit of friendship to the watching world? And I just want to say this. Think about this. What I'm trying to propose here is, and I'll explain it, your friendships with one another can change the world. If you have deep love and real friendship with one another, it will affect The watching world. It will affect people outside of those friendships. And there's two thoughts here. There's a lot of thoughts here, but two. First of all, is consistency. Friendship, when you are in a community of real people that know you and love you, there is a consistency about your life. You need this spurring, you need this encouraging. But if you have it, it makes you wise, it makes you humble, it makes you more consistent. It protects your godliness. Your godliness becomes more consistent. And this can change the world. Last Sunday, I took the kids to main event. Y'all ever been to Main Event? It's fun. It's, there's like a bowling alley, there's laser tag. It's a great place for kids. They love it. So we went there and John Kellis is into these racing games. And he wants to drive, you know. And you know, you get into these like cars, you sit down, and there's a huge screen. And so I'm driving in the car with John Kellis. And, you know, of course, like when it's a left turn, he's like, you know, it's a hard left turn. We crash into the wall. The, the ride doesn't actually move. But, the, you know, but then, you, you, you know, it's a hard turn left. And so you're watching this thing, and it's, you know, it makes you want to throw up just watching John Kellis drive this car. It's incredible. But that's how John Kellis drives, okay? So if any of y'all need a ride somewhere, don't ask John Kellis. <laughs> to give you a right. It's hard right. It's hard left. It's, it's big. It's violent. And I was thinking, you know, this is kind of the way the world feels right now. It is so extreme. It is so hard to the left. So hard to the right. So extreme. There's no, and, and people are like this too, you know, and, and some of your Christian lives are like this. You're doing this, you're in for the Lord, and then you're not into the Lord. And it's just this back and forth. You know, you know where there's power is where there's, when you stay on the road, where there's consistency, where there's a smoothness about your Christian life. It's not so extreme. It's consistent. I'm not saying it's not, I'm, I'm saying it's not fervent. I'm not saying that it's not going for it, but it's consistent. That is powerful. And it would especially be powerful in this reckless world that we're in right now. If anyone would just be consistent, if anyone would just stay on the road, it would, it would be so impactful. You know, a few years ago, some of y'all heard me share this story, but a few years ago, I was in uh, Japan. I was coming back from a mission trip, and I met Tom Eliff, who was the president of the International Mission Board before David Platt. Um, this was 2012. And so I was talking to Tom, and I, this was when I was in Covington, and he said, oh, I've just been in Atlanta. And I said, well, you know, what are you doing in Atlanta and he said, well, I was meeting with the executives at Coca-Cola. And I said, oh, well, you know, okay. Well, why were you meeting with the executives at Coca-Cola? And he said, well, Coca-Cola, this was 2012. He said, Coca-Cola has evangelized the whole world in 126 years. You know, there's really, I think it's North Korea, that maybe one other place. But you can, you can pretty much buy Coca-Cola. And if y'all have been, like, to remote, remote, remote. I've been to some remote, remote parts of the world. There's not even roads They've got Coca-Cola, you know. Coke is there. And so Coca-Cola has evangelized the whole, they have reached every people group in just 126 years. And he said, we've had 2,000 years and we can't do it. So I'm trying to learn from them. And I said, well, what did they say? And he said, you know what they said? They said, the reason we've had so much success is that our product is consistent. The branding is consistent. I mean, think about Coca-Cola, they're not updating their brand. They tried to, didn't work. They stuck with the thing. Coca-Cola, the branding is consistent, the product is consistent. You don't open a can of Coke and get grape juice, right? You don't open a can of Coke and get water. You know, you get Coca-Cola, and now it's all over the world. Their there's consistency. And what, uh, what the Coca-Cola people said to Tom Eliph? you know what they said? They said, Christians aren't like that. You don't know what you get with a Christian, you, get, you know, you get holiness, you get craziness, you get this, you get that. You don't know what you get. That's not the way that Jesus wants us to be. And you know what's going to keep us, you know what's going to keep us steady, you know what's going to keep us consistent in our walk is one another. We're speaking into one another's lives and seeing one another's blind stuff and keeping us faithful to God's word. Friendship will give you consistency. But the second thing, and this is, uh, so important. This is, if you have friends, if you have real friends, you will have courage. And courage is what will change the watching world. It takes a lot of courage to live life in general. Let's be honest. It's hard to put yourself out there every day. It takes courage. Sometimes as as you want to kind of crawl up and withdraw from the world. But the people that Continue to put themselves out there, the people that continue to be faithful in their witness for Christ, the people that continue to be concerned with others. It takes a lot of courage to be concerned with others. I'm going to just tell you if you start really being concerned with others in this world, you're going to be taken advantage of. If you start being concerned with others in this life, you're going to get hurt because they're not going to respond in the way that they should. And they shouldn't, but this is just the way it is. It takes courage. You got to have more courage than the average person to be be any sort of an agent for good, any sort of an agent for Christ in this world. And and you, and here's what I've learned. The people that have friends, the people that are loved, people that have people that are giving them courage, they're stirring them on, they're encouraging them, those are the people that actually have courage. Courage to go out and try great things. Courage to go out and do great things. Your friendships in here your, your, fam, your, your understanding of Christian family is going to dramatically impact who you are as a kingdom ambassador. If you don't have, if you don't have a sense of belonging and love and, and encouragement here, you're, you're not going to be effective out there. If you don't gather well, you won't scatter well. It's the same idea. There's um, a guy, Tony Campolo, some of y'all know who this is. He's a pastor up in, I think, Philadelphia. And he's done a bunch of different things. But he tells this story. It's a great story. He was in Honolulu one time. He had flown out there to speak. And, you know, if you've ever traveled from the East Coast to the West Coast and then, like, whatever Honolulu is, you know, way out. You wake up early, right? I've never been to Hawaii, but I've been to, like, California. You wake up really early when you travel that way. And so he woke up at 3 a.m., you know, wide awake, can't go to sleep. So he goes to this little diner, gets a cup of coffee, gets some breakfast. And um, he's sitting there eating, and, and all of these prostitutes come in. It's 3.30 at night. And so he's sitting there, you know, eating his food, kind of overhearing them. And there's this old, you know, crusty old man working there named Harry. And, uh, and he overhears one of the prostitutes say, tomorrow's my birthday. And they said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to have a party? And she says, I'm not going to have a party. She, she said, I've never had a, par- I've never had a birthday party. So then the prostitutes leave. And Tony looks at Harry, the crusty old guy running the place, and he said, hey, what do you say we throw her a party tomorrow? Do they come here every night? And you know, Harry said, yeah. So Tony goes out, buys a cake, buys a bunch of decorations. He has Harry call all of her friends, okay, because they all came there. So next night, Tony Campolo goes to decorate the place. They, her name was Agnes. They make this big sign, happy birthday, Agnes. They had a cake. It had her name on it. And uh, all, and, and Harry had called all these prostitutes, these are the places packed with prostitutes, right? And so he gets there the next night, 3.30 comes around, sure enough, Agnes comes and everybody says, happy birthday, Agnes. And Tony Campola says, she wept. She broke down into tears. She couldn't control herself. In fact, Harry, the crusty old Harry brings her the cake and he says, you know, blow out your candles. She couldn't do it. She couldn't, she she didn't have the composure to blow out her own candles. And so Harry blew out the candles for her. And then Harry handed her a knife and he said, hey, cut the cake. Let's eat the cake. And Agnes said, can I just keep the cake? Can I just keep, I I don't want to cut it. Can I just keep the cake? And so, in fact, she says, you know what? I'm going to take it home. So they're all there. And she says, I want to take the cake. So she leaves. She takes the cake away. And she lived close, but she's. I'll be right back. I'm gonna. Leave. So they're all standing around, like, "Well, what do we do now? You know, you know, we did the surprise. We're supposed to have the party. The person's gone. And so Tony Campolo says, "Let's just pray for Agnes." So he leads this prayer, he prays that Agnes would be healed, that she would know how much God loves her, that she'd be saved. He does this beautiful prayer for her. And Harry, after the prayer, looks at Tony and says, "What are you a Christian?" And Tony Campolo said. Well, yeah. And Harry said, well, what kind of church do you go to? And Tony Campolo, in just a great moment of wit, said, I go to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 (laughs) a.m. And Harry said to him, Harry said to him, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, there isn't a church like that. He said, if there was a church like that, I'd go to that church. You're not always gonna have an opportunity to throw a birthday party for a prostitute at 3.30 a.m. But you know what, every week, you guys have an opportunity to do something. Something that's outward focused, something that's putting yourself on the line, something that considers the needs of others. But it takes courage. And it's pretty much worthless unless you have some consistency. And what's gonna give you courage and consistency is community is when there's really people that love you, that you know are behind you, that you know when you do put yourself out there and it doesn't go as planned, they're going to back you up. Do you have people like that in your life? That's the beauty of the church. And, and you know what? I want to say this. In the church, we're the ki- we should be the kind of people that can be great friends because we have the greatest friend. We have the friend who's totally consistent, who is totally courageous, I mean, Jesus, and and he's totally identifies with us. He, He pursued us in every way. He became like us so that he could know you, so that he could be close to you. He's totally consistent. He never fails you. He's always the same. He never sinned. He's totally courageous. He faced death. He faced your biggest problem for you. You know why friendship is so hard? Because of sin. Good people are selfish because people cheat one another, because people are dishonest with other, because of all of this sin. You know what Jesus did? He came to get rid of your sin. He he came so that you could be forgiven of your sin and so that you could have the power to begin to deal with your sin, so you could be a really good friend. And if you know this friend, you can be a good friend. And these are the kinds of friendships that will, A, make a church that pleases God, but also a church that changes the world. Let's pray that God would do that here. Father, I pray that... um, we would heed these words, we would not forsake meeting together, that we would be consistent with each other, that we would consider one another, there'd be some sort of outward-facing urgency in our lives, and that we'd be thoughtful, that we wouldn't be the kind of people that are only thinking of ourselves or even trying to serve others in the way that we think that they should be served, but we really consider them. And Father, I pray that in this, as we are these kinds of friends, um, you'd give us great consistency in our lives. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be reckless in our Christian living, but we would be consistent. And Father, I pray that we would be courageous. Uh, the kind of church that, that throws birthday parties for prostitutes, but does so many other things, Lord. It's a truly an outward-facing community that, that, that considers others around us. Because, Lord, we have a friend that considered us. And I pray this in that friend's name, the name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at ChristCovenant.com.